You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen from me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord in Psalm 16. And church, this morning on this Easter Sunday, it is my joy to show you Jesus in this psalm. Psalm 16 is about Jesus. And before we get any further along here, I want us to just take a step back for a minute and remember what the book of Psalms is doing in the Bible. We talked about this last summer in Psalm 1, that that in the Bible storyline, when we get to the book of Psalms, the the big question kind of in the air of the Bible storyline is this question, what will happen to the house of David? And that's a big question because of the promise that God had made to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Old Testament. Remember that God had made David king by absolute grace. David was just a little shepherd boy, but God sends Samuel to anoint David as king. And then later, after David becomes king, He brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and he tells God that he wants to build God a house. But then God comes to David and he says, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. And then God makes these promises to David. God says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you victory over all your enemies. I'm going to make you a great name. I'm going to plant my people in their place for good. And when God says this to David in 2 Samuel 7, it it reminds us about the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. The promises, they kind of sound the same. But remember, like the big part of the promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12, it was about offspring, 
God told Abraham that Abraham would have a son through whom the whole world would be blessed. So guess what the the high point of God's promise to David is? God tells David, I'm going to raise up one of your sons, David, who will be king forever. After you die and you're buried, I'm going to raise up one of your sons and he is going to have an eternal throne. So there there will be, this is what's happening here, there will be a son of Abraham who is also a son of David who will be king forever. That's God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But here's the problem. In Israel's history, things start to fall apart. Within just a few decades of this promise that God has made to David, Israel forsakes Yahweh and they go and worship idols. And then the kingdom gets divided and eventually pagan nations come into Jerusalem, destroy the city, take the people into exile, and it just becomes this huge mess. And so the big question is, hey, what about God's promise? Will God's people always live in exile? What about this son of David who is supposed to come and be king forever? Well, the book of Psalms steps in to answer that question. And the answer in short is that there is still hope for the house of David because the house of David is still the hope. The future of God's people is bound up in God's promise to David. And even when it doesn't seem like it, against all odds, God is going to fulfill that promise. There will be a son in David's line called Messiah who will reign as king forever. That is going to happen. And that is what the Psalms are are mainly about. And so now we come to Psalm 16, a Psalm of David, and we see in Psalm 16 this beautiful model of faith. David is showing us here what it looks like to trust God in the middle of adversity. And there are just two main parts I want us to see. First, there is the declaration of his faith in verses 1 to 8. And then second, there is the assurance for his faith in verses 9 to 11. There's the what of faith. And then there's the why of faith, and we need both. Okay, I just want to go ahead and tell you that the, 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 this, this sermon is not going to make any sense unless you get to hear the second part here. Okay, I'm going to go quickly through this first part because I want to spend most of our time on this second part because I believe the wonder of this passage is really in the why behind David's faith, and I'm excited for us to get there. And just right now, before we take another step, I want us to pray. Actually, I want you to pray. Just just for a minute, I want you to take a moment here, and I want you to ask God that He would show you wonder from this passage. You can pray something as simple as this. Just pray, Father, 
Please open my eyes to behold wonder from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for praying that. All right. The declaration of his faith in verses 1 to 8. And again here, remember, David's faith is meant to be an example for us. We're supposed to read this and we're supposed to think, hey, that's the kind of faith I want to have. That's the kind of faith God wants me to have. And when we look look closer at these verses, we see that this faith of David, it it includes certain ingredients. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to mention three, and I'm going to mention these very quickly. Three ingredients, petition, blessing, and resolve. Look first at petition. This is what David is asking God to do. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And I love this prayer. Just think about what David is saying. He says, preserve me, which means keep me because I go to you for refuge. He's saying, keep me, God, keep me, God, because I look to you as my keeper. David, in essence, is praying, God, be who you are for me. It's it's a simple prayer. And what a picture of humble faith. We're not bringing to God our own agendas and asking God to get on board. Instead, we are coming to God because of who he is. And we're saying, yes, God. Do that. Be that. God, be who you are for me. And you're going to see in the Psalms that most of the petitions in the Psalms don't actually get more complicated than that. We just need God to be God for us. That's what we need. That's David's petition. Now, skip to verse 5. Now, I'm going to write you something about verses 3 to 4, kind of like Pastor Joe did last week. We just don't have time, but there's something there. I'm going to write about it. But look first now, uh, look here at verse 5. This is David's blessing, okay? And this is the clearest declaration of his faith. And I'm calling this David's blessing because of the language he uses. The words like chosen portion, cup, lot, lines, or boundaries, inheritance. These are all things that communicate blessing, These are things that show what you've got. We might call these things something like assets, okay? And when you put them all together and you you crunch some numbers, this is how you can figure out your net worth, okay? That's That's what David is talking about here. And when David, when he takes stock of all these things, this is what he says. He says, my chosen portion, God. My cup, God. My lot, God. See, see, David understands that in reality, everything else is practically lost compared to the worth of having God. And we know now God has blessed David abundantly. David has all kinds of gifts. But David would say, my real blessing is God himself. And this is our example of faith. This is radically God-centered faith. Did you know, Christian, did you know that if you have God, because you have God, you have everything? And actually, 
it's God that you've always wanted. This is the blessing we see in verses 5 and 6. God is the blessing. Now the resolve in verse 7. David has resolved to live his life with God always at the center. He orients, he orients everything around God. God is the one who guides him. God is the one who is before him. God is the one who is beside him. For those who trust God like David did, there is not a corner in their life. There's not an angle. There's not a part of their life where God is not. God is in it all and God is over it all. And this is how we live. To follow David's example of faith, it means that God is more real to us than anything else. And when we live that way, when God is more real to us than anything else, then the anything else will not be able to shake us. You see that? When God is most real to us, we will be the most unshakable. That's the what of David's faith in verses 1 to 8. That's his faith, the declaration of his faith. And it's beautiful and it's, it's wonderful. And man, I, I want to have faith like that. We want to have faith like that. But where does it come from? Where does it come from? That, that's, this now is the most important part. There's a declaration of David's faith, but now we look at the assurance for his faith in verses 9 to 11. And it's almost like David here takes us behind the scenes and he shows us both the root and the fruit of his faith. And first, uh, since we see it right away here in verse 9, I just want to comment on the fruit. Okay, straightforward here. It's joy. David's heart is glad. His whole being rejoices because of his faith in God. Because David trusts in the Lord, David has joy. We see that in verse 9. David comes back to it in verse 11, and then really sandwiched between those two verses about joy, that's where we find really the root of David's faith. Verse 10, Psalm 16, verse 10 specifically, shows us the great why behind David's faith and David's joy. Okay, verse 9 says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Verse 10, for because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So what does this mean? Well, at just at face value, we see that the assurance, the root, the why of David's faith is that God will not abandon him to Sheol, which is also called the, the Hades. Um, in other words, David here is talking about the grave, okay? Sheol, Hades, the grave, that's what he's talking about. David is talking about where your body goes after you die. And David says here that God is not going to leave him there, which means David is hoping in the resurrection. At the very least, Psalm 16 is an ancient picture of hope in the resurrection. But 
It's actually more than that because of this second clause here where God says that he will not let his Holy One see corruption, which means David is not talking about a far off future resurrection, but this is an imminent resurrection. This is so soon a resurrection that the body will not see decay. There will be no corruption. So then David, he, he isn't talking about himself here. He's talking about Messiah. This is one of those places in the Psalms where the psalmist is not speaking about himself. And he's not even speaking about Messiah. But he's speaking as Messiah. As Messiah. And we know that's what is happening here in Psalm 16, because that's precisely the way that the apostles understand Psalm 16. We see the apostle Paul read Psalm 16 this way in Acts 13. And we also see the apostle Peter read Psalm 16 this way in Acts chapter 2. This is the first Christian sermon, you could say, ever preached. This is the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. In the crescendo of his sermon, Peter goes to Psalm 16 and he tells us what Psalm 16 is about. So take your Bibles for, for just a minute and flip over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. For context here, Peter is proclaiming who Jesus is to an audience of people who were familiar with Jesus. These, these are people who had been around. Uh, many of them had heard Jesus teach. Many of them had even seen Jesus perform miracles. And Peter says to this audience in verse 23, he says, hey, you crucified Jesus. Peter says to the people that he's talking to that they were the ones who killed Jesus. But in verse 24, Peter says, God raised him up. You killed him, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So God raised Jesus from the dead. That's Peter's point. And, and they knew it. The people he's talking to knew it. The grave was empty and they all knew it. But then Peter makes a connection for them. Death cannot hold God's Messiah because, verse 25, David says concerning him. Okay, so David has said something about Messiah. Where? Where at? This is where Peter quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. And now we know Peter read from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So there are a couple words that are different, but Peter goes, goes ahead here. He quotes, he, he's preaching, he quotes the entire passage, verses 8 to 11. And then Peter explains the passage. And this is where we get to the heart. Okay, Peter tells us the, what David is doing in Psalm 16. This is what he says, Acts chapter 2, verse 29. He's preaching. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. 
So this is Peter saying that David can't possibly be talking about himself in Psalm 16 because David died and was buried and he's still dead and buried. And they all knew it. Everyone who is hearing Peter, they, they knew that. And so Peter says in verse 30, being therefore prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So clear as day here. Peter says that David is talking about the resurrection of Jesus in Psalm 16. Psalm 16 verse 10 is about the resurrection of Jesus. And remember that, that David talks about the resurrection of Jesus as the assurance for his faith. The reason that David trusts God the way that he does in Psalm 16 is because he knows that Messiah is going to be raised from the dead. We can see that. We can see that. But there's even more. What exactly is the connection then between the Messiah being raised and David's faith? I think Peter shows us. Look again in Acts chapter 2, verse 30. Peter says that beneath David speaking about Messiah's resurrection is this. It's verse 30. Knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. So David knew God swore something to him. God swore something to David. Do you remember what it is? It's 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promised David that David would have a son in his line who would reign as king forever. And Peter says that's what David is thinking about when he writes Psalm 16. When David writes Psalm 16, he is reflecting on God's, on God's promise to him in 2 Samuel 7. He is David is reflecting on God's promise that he would have a son who reigns as king forever. That's why he talks about the resurrection. It's because the only way you have an eternal king is if that king can conquer death. That, that wasn't the case for any of the other kings all the other descendants of David who became king, the one thing they all had in common was that they all died and were buried. You can just go read First and Second Kings. You see this repeated over and over again. All these kings, they died and they were buried with their fathers. But if God's promise in 2 Samuel 7 is going to be true, then one of David's sons must conquer death. And David knew that. And that son who will conquer death, that son 
is Messiah and he is the why of David's faith. It's not just that Messiah would be resurrected. It's that the reign of Messiah would be established through resurrection. See, the reign of Jesus, the reign of Jesus has always been part of the resurrection of Jesus. The the good news of the empty tomb is not just that Jesus conquered death, but it's that through conquering death, Jesus is the king of all. That's why the New Testament talks about the resurrection as Jesus's exaltation. Jesus was raised from the dead and enthroned as the Davidic king who will reign forever. And that's actually where Peter ends in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. Peter says that God raised Jesus from the dead. And then in verse 33, Peter says, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter tells his audience that the work of God they are experiencing right now is because Jesus reigns. So let everybody know You go, let everybody know that this Jesus, he is Messiah and he is Lord of all. This is the fact that changes everything. It's that Jesus Christ is the resurrected king who is king over everything. That's the assurance for David's faith. See, David is saying in Psalm 16, because God has promised to establish the reign of Messiah through resurrection, I'm going to trust God and live in joy. And as for us, the way we follow David's example is that we say, Because God has raised Messiah, because Jesus is the resurrected king who reigns and will reign, I'm going to trust him and I'm going to live in joy. And that's where Psalm 16 ends in verse 11. We come back to joy. This is the joy that Jesus has set before him when he endured the cross. This is the joy of being with God in his presence, in his fellowship. And it's a joy that Jesus had known before the foundations of the world. Remember, Jesus came from joy and he was headed back to joy and he came here to bring us with him. For all of us who are united to Jesus by faith, joy is our future just like it was for him. And because joy is our future, We can live in that joy now. We can. And if there's anything in us that that feels like that sounds cheap or canned 
or cliche, or, or cliche. If we think that that just sounds like we're unaware of the real world, all this joy talk, I want you to know that's, that's wrong. That's just wrong. Joy is more ultimate than the universe itself because there has never been a time when joy was not because there has never been a time when God was not. Joy is ultimate and therefore you cannot flank joy with something deeper or wiser. Just last week, guys, I was reading this old novel by uh, Frederick Buechner called The Final Beast. It's out of print now. It was published back in 1965. It's a book about joy. And, and in the book, the main character is this pastor who is having this crisis of faith. And he ends up meeting this older woman who has a reputation for praying like very effective prayers. People would travel to see this woman and she would pray for them. Sometimes she would do miracles for them. And so this pastor is having this conversation with her. And as he's talking with her, she starts to share about the joy of the Lord in her life. And as she is talking about this joy, the pastor who has been burned, he's a little cynical. As she's talking, he wants to bust out laughing at her. But he doesn't because he's afraid that if he laughs at her, she would just laugh too. And she would laugh even louder than him. See, in the conversation with this woman, the pastor came to understand that joy always has the upper hand. He understands that actually he was the one who missed it. Joy always has the final say. And then later on in the book, the pastor who was waking up, he makes this amazing statement. And this is like my all-time favorite quote from Fred Beekner. But this is what the pastor says. He says, quote, The worst thing isn't the last thing about the world. The last thing is the best. And the last thing is joy. That's what Psalm 16 says. The last thing is joy. It is the joy of God that we will know, Christian. It's the joy of God that we will know because Jesus Christ is the resurrected King who reigns over all. In Acts chapter 2, after Peter, uh, after he preached Jesus from Psalm 16, um, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2 that those who heard were cut to the heart. They heard Peter preach from Psalm 16, they were cut to the heart. I don't know uh, where your heart is right now as you watch this video. I don't know where, where it's at. I don't know where you are. But I want to invite you right now to trust in Jesus. I want to invite you to believe in Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross, he took all of our sins upon himself. He took the punishment that we deserved and Jesus died in our place. And on the third day, 
Jesus was raised from the dead, raised from the dead, exalted as the Lord of all. And that means that right now, in this moment, if you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus, you will be forgiven and you will have a future of joy in God. That's the truth of the gospel. And so right now, I want to invite you, repent and believe the gospel. And church, let us give God thanks. Happy Easter.